The following is a rebroadcast that originally aired in 2010. Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, we're going to deal today with a couple of questions that came to you through email. Great. Maybe after they hear these two questions, they'll be motivated to ask some others. Because actually one of them isn't so much a question, but just asking me, you know, did I see a particular article? And it really is helpful to me when you find something of interest out there and uh, you yeah. may have a question or just want to know what I think of it. Yeah, I've uh, sent you links know. before too. Yeah, yeah, you have. It's it's really helpful. You know, I don't sit down and just read the science through and nature through or the, the various web pages and so forth. So uh, my email address is scripture at scriptureoncreation.org. Pretty right. easy to remember, I hope. My ministry name, scriptureoncreation.org, and then just put scripture at the front of it. So you can send a question to scripture at scriptureoncreation.org. And that's what a couple of people did this week or recently. And the first question comes from Ben Foote in Lansing, Michigan. Oh, you've got uh, quite a broad listenership there. Yeah, I um, know Ben, and uh, I think he listens to my program by uh, podcast. Oh, because uh, I don't have a station. Can do that? Well, yeah, if they just go on my website, (laughs) ScriptureOnCreation.org, sounds like a big commercial here today. (laughs) Um, They can uh, just sign up for a free podcast on my radio program, and uh, you you won't have to wait until Friday morning if you're listening on the Good News Network Mm. or Saturday morning here in the uh, uh, Indiana listening area. So again, you can sign up for a podcast and listen to the Scripture on Creation program whenever you'd like. Okay, so this is from Ben Foote in Lansing, Michigan. The question is, what are your opinions on the new discovery of the Moby Dick whale? Uh, and why do scientists think it is 12 million years old and how can they be proved wrong? Okay, well, what is the Moby Dick Moby whale? Dick was written 12 million years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, wasn't Moby Dick a big white whale? Exactly. Yeah, well, I don't think they actually discovered Moby Dick the white whale. What he's talking about is some research that was recently published in the journal Nature. And so uh, let me read a little bit from this article, not from Nature, but an article discussing it. The title of the article by the Associated Press was Giant Predatory Whale Named for Moby Dick Author. In other words, they named mm-hmm. this whale that they found in the fossil record after the Moby Dick Author. Now, oh, quick so question. They, Do you know who the author of Moby Dick was? Herman Melville. Excellent, Scott. So they named the whale Herman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they named it. What did they name it? Here's what they named it. Leviathan Melvilli. Oh, wow. Isn't that a great name? Leviathan yeah. Melvilli. So let me read what they said. This is out of London. Scientists have discovered an ancient whale whose bite ripped huge chunks of flesh out of other whales about 12 million years ago. Wow. Uh, so that's where, you know, he's asking about what about this 12 million years business. But anyway, that's what they are saying this fossil's age is. And then I'll continue reading. And they've named it after the author of Moby Dick. The prehistoric sperm whale grew to between 13 and 18 meters, that is 60 feet long. Not unusual by today's standards. And what they mean by that is, you know, whales get that big Mm -hmm. and even larger today. But the neat thing about it is what they think it ate. I'll continue reading. But unlike modern sperm whales, Leviathan Melvilli, named for Herman Melville, sported vicious, tusk-like teeth some 14 inches long. Wow. That's impressive. Now, you know, listener, put your fingers, (laughs) unless you're driving, put your finger (laughs) there, you know, 14 inches, teeth that big. That's bigger than a T-Rex and... (laughs) 
<laughs> leave a mark if it left anything at all. So anyway, the ancient beast evidently dined on other whales, researchers said in Thursday's issue of the journal Nature. They report finding a skull of the beast in a Peruvian desert. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. Peru, what is Peru? Peru's all mountains. It's got <laughs> yeah. you know, way up there. And it's got this desert on the high uh, plateau. And they found whale fossils in the Peruvian desert. Wow. This is why they're dating it to be uh, you know, 12 million years old. Part of the assumption is, well, there's no way that they could have whales up that high, except it took a long time geologically for you know those mountains to be upthrust. You know, once upon a time, it was an ocean. Mm. So uh, that's part of the reason that these things are dated that way. And of course, they'll generally use other fossils that they date a certain age, find them in the same strata, and then they come up with uh, dating that whale to be equivalent to those fossils' ages and so forth. I don't know if they were doing radiometric dating. I doubt it, frankly, that they would have used radiometric dating to come up with the ages of 12 to 13 million years old for this particular whale. But uh, do note that we had whales up where um, the Peruvian desert now is. <laughs> I would suggest that that's as a result of a flood that yeah. covered the mountains, not as high as those Peruvian mountains are today. but Because um, a lot of the mountains were created by the Great Flood. Absolutely. And thrust up high into the upper uh, echelons of our topography mm. of our geology today. So that issue of Nature that this was published in was the July issue of Nature, July 2010. Let me read a little bit more here. It said the ancient beasts were the killer whales of their time, although on much grander scale, said a scientist named uh, Friskia. And uh, he said that they were close to the biggest things around. Now, these researchers named Leviathan Melvilli in a tribute to the 19th century author and his classic tale of the great white whale, which includes frequent digressions on natural history that punctuate the action. There is a chapter about fossils. One of the authors of the paper mentioned, who was a, uh, well, let me give his name, Oliver Lambert of the Natural History Museum in Paris. Uh, did you ever read Moby Dick, Scott? Portions of it. I never quite got all the way through it. I remember reading it, but frankly, I don't remember anything in it about fossils. <laughs> uh, I guess I just was focused more on the action. Yeah. Anyway, Friska goes on to say he's a paleontologist at UCLA, that he thought the choice of a name was fantastic. In other words, he really liked the uh, Leviathan Melvilli also. He said, quote, you gotta love anytime you get a nod to literature in taxonomy. Hmm. It was a big whale, so why not? He's talking about the one that they discovered in the fossil record. Well, you know, Ben, I really thought that the name was pretty cool myself, but I like the name of this newly discovered whale more for the Leviathan mm. part than the Melvilli part, <laughs> naming it after the Moby Dick author, because, of course, Leviathan comes from the Bible. Now, uh, the one writer mentioned that he really thought it was neat anytime you name something as a result of some literature. Well, he was talking about, you know, Moby Dick. But, of course, Leviathan also comes from literature. It comes from the Bible, the book of Job, where there's this amazing description of this incredible fire-breathing, apparently dragon-like monster that did live in water. So it is appropriate that they named this whale Leviathan because generally the descriptions of Leviathan speak of this creature as living in the water. Now, as for the other part of Ben's question where he was asking, how can we prove them to be wrong? You know, there really isn't any way to prove them wrong any more than they can prove that this fossil that they've discovered is 12 to 13 million years old. 
Essentially, these kinds of dating techniques involve assumptions that can't be strictly proven. So they'll try and marshal evidence from phenomena that they can test and make their case. But of course, a creationist can do the same as we would have an assumption or at least a bias that the world is not that old and we have evidences to marshal, but we can't go back and just show that that whale lived that long ago or disprove that that whale lived that long ago. One of the things that I find interesting, and of course, this is rather a joke, what if they were able to find some meat stuck between the teeth, unfossilized meat stuck between its teeth? (laughs) That would mean it's 12 million year old meat. And of oh, course, you know, it's keep been, that long. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but as it's been uh, proposed that they found 65 million year old meat in fossils of some dinosaurs. So anyway, I really do appreciate the note that Ben sent and I uh, hope that was able to answer his question just a little bit. Okay. Now our next question comes from Grant Regner in Warsaw, Indiana. And mm-hmm. apparently he sent you a link to an article, Genes Predict Living Beyond 100, yes. I believe is the title of it. it. says, I thought you might enjoy this article. It strays briefly from genetic science and even mentions variables such as enrichment and members of a church living longer. What do you think of their research? All right. So this is an article entitled, as you mentioned, Genes Predict Living Beyond 100. And uh, the upshot of this research, and I'll discuss it a little bit here, is that they found genetic markers, and I won't go into that any more than they can find certain specific traits within genes that are common to a large group of people. And in this particular group of people they were studying, they were all people that lived to be 100 or more. Mm. And they're saying that they found some markers common to these people. So I'll be reading an article by Victoria Gill in The Science Reporter from the BBC News, and she's reporting on an article that was published in the magazine or the journal Science. She says, U.S. scientists have developed a way of predicting how likely a person is to live beyond the age of 100. The test is based on the largest study of centenarians in the world. That's people who live to be 100 or more. The breakthrough described in the journal Science is based on 150 genetic signposts found in exceptionally long-lived people. Now, I call those signposts genetic markers. Same thing. The Boston team created a mathematical model which takes information from these signposts to work out a person's chance of reaching 100. It's based on the largest study of centenarians in the world. This is a rare trait. Only one in 6,000 people in industrialized countries reach such a ripe old age. Let me stop right there. If you think you've got a chance of living to be 100, well, that's one in 6,000. Those aren't the greatest odds, are they? You know, a lot of times we sort of think that, well, people are living longer and I might live to be 100. Well, the odds are actually pretty thin. And so that's a sobering thought. We are all going to die. And the chances are we're not going to live to be 100 year old. So how old are you? No, I'm oh. saying that. You don't have to answer that, okay. Scott. I'm, I'm asking rhetorically. <laughs> I'm asking the listener out there. So, you know, at the very best, if you live to be 100, how many years do you have? And how are you living your life for the Lord? Or if you are ignoring the claims that the Lord has on your life and the uh, very sobering statement, it's appointed on demand once to die and then to mm-hmm. judgment. You know, I would encourage you, listener out there, to determine, you know, where are you going to stand when you actually face the Lord someday? So this study is saying that there are actually some genetic markers out there that are common to people that live to be 100 years old. It goes on to say the researchers now think they have cracked the genetic secret of this longevity. The researchers said that we tested our model in an independent set of centenarians and achieved an accuracy of 77%. So out of 100 centenarians, we could correctly predict the outcome of 77. In other words, they took 100 people that were 100 
And then they looked to see if they could find mm-hmm. that same set of 150 markers. And they came out 77% of the time to find them. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty interesting set of markers that they found. Of course, this doesn't mean that you won't get hit by a truck or <laughs> die of a disease, but all things being equal, what they're saying is essentially these markers indicate a person's lack, really, of a predisposition for certain types of diseases, heart disease and kidney failure, whatever, and gives them a better shot at actually living to be 100, all other things being equal. So the uh, other part of the study that Grant actually mentioned was they also talked about some factors called enrichment. Another interesting thing that they found, however, was that aside from just these genetic markers, Things like having a religious life, having a a well-rounded church background also seem to be a factor in living longer. So uh, it's not all about genes, but we're finding that genetics actually does have a very specific factor in long life. And of course, we sort of know that already. You know, if you've got grandparents who live to be old, you think that you've got a better chance of living (laughs) longer. But again, let me point out, the word tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says.